I says, hey, Tim, I see you, uh, you signed Meg up for basketball. I said, yeah, yeah. And she, he says, well, so the good news is there's about six or seven girls from our parish, so we can basically form a St. Andrew's team to put in the rec league. I said, oh, that's great. He said, the bad news is we don't have a coach. I said, oh, Michael, I, uh, I can think of a couple guys who might be able to help you with that. He's like, no, Tim, uh, you're, you're all trained and everything. You used to play basketball. I'm wondering if you can coach. And I said, Michael, any any other year but this one, uh, I just got to tell you, I'm so busy. I'm 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 working on a book. He says, "What's the book about?" I said, My, "It's about uh, how we need strong community institutions to build up." Yeah, and so <laughs> you can guess what happened. I ended up yeah, you talk yourself into it, right? <laughs> coaching. Mike was coaching kindergarten girls basketball while writing Alienated America, and I loved it. It was so rewarding. There's like the other parents were coming up to me after every practice and thanking me. What a rewarding thing to have that sense of purpose in your life. You're listening to the Strong Towns Podcast. Everybody, this is Chuck Marone. Welcome back to the Strong Towns podcast. Tim Carney is the commentary editor at the Washington Examiner and a visiting fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. His latest book is called Alienated America, Why Some Places Thrive While Others Collapse. It was one of my top five books of the year for last year, and he has agreed to come on the podcast today to chat about it. Tim, welcome to the Strong Towns podcast. Thanks for having me. And you are a prolific father who's at home and may have a, a two-year-old running around the background. So we may get some family-friendly sounds here, right? Yeah, and a couple dogs as well. <laughs> what kind of dogs do you have? They both were basically strays. One's uh, part pit bull, part boxer, and the other we have, uh, we have no idea. <laughs> Beautiful. That's awesome. I read your book, and I've, I've followed your work for quite a while now. We just finished with the impeachment hearings in the Senate. And Mitt Romney was the only Republican to vote for impeachment. And I actually understand why, because I read your book, Alienated America. I want to lead up to that. I want to get to that explanation, which will be my last question is why did Mitt Romney vote for impeachment? But can we start this story in Orange City, Iowa? I think that this is probably uh, the most compelling to me juxtaposition. And I'd like to start there. What was your experience in Orange City, and how did that kind of illuminate you in putting this book together? Yeah, so as you mentioned, I do political reporting. I've been to Iowa going back to 2002 a bunch of times, and when I found out there was a town called Orange City, I was curious why it was orange. Um, I'm an Irish Catholic, so if you know <laughs> Irish history, the color orange can be a little triggering. Absolutely. Um and so this, this woman I met in Iowa City, uh, she worked at the university there. She said, well, it's, we're orange because we're all Dutch. And her name really was like Holly Vandersumpen. Yeah. <laughs> she, I said, how, how Dutch were you? Because, you know, I grew up kind of Irish. We listened to the music. We ate the food, etc." She said, let me put it this way. We used to wear wooden clogs marching past Windmill Square for the annual Tulip Festival. <laughs> she went on to sound like a Simpsons episode send-up of this. And that's so I all, went out that's all in, yeah. <laughs> I went out to Orange City, and sure enough, you know, there were women bragging about how they were named Wilhelmina, which was the name of the Queen of the Netherlands during the two world wars, etc. And I was at a Jeb Bush rally. But the interesting thing I found 
was that um, it was a very religious conservative town and that nobody there was supporting Donald Trump in the caucuses. The county it's in, Sioux County, Iowa, is the most Dutch county in all of America. And I found a lot of things about about Sioux County, but I, I want to tell you just the interesting political point here. Sioux County was Donald Trump's single worst county in the caucuses. So when he was running against Cruz and Rubio and Kasich and all those guys, Trump finished fourth behind Ben Carson even in with 11%, his single worst county in the caucuses. Then come the general election, Sioux County was Trump's single best county. Why? Mostly because it's a Republican county. It's the most Republican county, most conservative county in Iowa. So what's interesting to me was that poor caucus performance. When I was asking people before the caucuses, I said, this, this county seems different, and I can't put my finger on it. There's a lot of sort of religious right, conservative places in, in America, but um, something about the Dutch Reformed churches here made it different. And one guy was like, well, out here, everybody looks after their neighbors. Everybody cares for them. Everybody, they care about the environment. They're not really into big government stuff. And I found out they go to church twice on Sunday is the way a lot of the Christian Reformed churches do it. And as I looked into this to Orange City, and I visited there a few times, other similar places with these Dutch Reformed churches and, and the, the real Dutch ancestry and the windmills and all that, I don't think it's the windmills, Chuck. I think that what's going on is these churches are really, really good at building community. And there was one guy in Oostburg, Wisconsin, who even told me, he said, uh, when he couldn't get a seat at a Christmas concert, he's at the public school in Oostburg, he, he looked over and sees a, a guy who sends his kids to the private school, so one of his neighbors. He's like, hey, man, I don't even have a seat. You're, you're taking my seat. Why are you even at this concert? And the, the, the neighbor said, well, you got to come see our kids sing. Our kids, meaning the children of Oostburg, not he and his wife's kids. They call the children of the town our kids. And this was something I found consistently throughout these Dutch Reformed places like Holland, Michigan, etc., that there was immense social cohesion, immense sense of trust, and a lot of sense of duty to one's neighbor. That resonated with me a ton because, I mean, I, I live in a small town in central Minnesota that we here went for Marco Rubio in the same way in our caucus night during that primary. And the idea of voting for Trump was not really something anyone did. Changed during the general election. We went really big for Donald Trump at that point. Why are you looking at the primaries and the caucuses versus uh, the general election? Why, why does that dichotomy stand out for you? Well, so those er especially those early primaries. If you remember Donald Trump's first speech when he announced his campaign, the thing that made the news was him talking about rapists coming from Mexico, etc., but the final line was the first time he said, make America great again. The way he set up that line was he declared, the American dream is dead, but we will bring it back. But that first proclamation, the American dream is dead. I think that that was the best indicator of the places that would go for Trump in the early primaries, in Iowa, in New Hampshire, etc. Not the places I would vote for him in general. That mostly breaks down along party. The fact is that almost all Republicans voted for Donald Trump. Almost all Democrats voted for Hillary Clinton. There was a little bit of switching. That made the difference. But from a sociological perspective, the more interesting thing, I would go to these rallies and I would find people standing, waiting for four hours to get into a Trump rally who had never voted before, who couldn't name their senator or their governor, who said, politics has never spoken to me. Politics is a bunch of BS. 
but Trump speaks to me. People who would caucus, and in, to, to caucus in Iowa, you have to like get a babysitter. You have to tr- drive over. You have to give up two hours of your night. These were people who had never voted before, and they're caucusing. So when Trump brought those people out of the woodwork, I think there were people who said, yes, finally somebody who says the American dream is dead, and it's all rigged against us. And so the places like Orange City and Oostburg were the places where the American dream wasn't dead. Where when they were asked, do you want Trump or Hillary in November 2016, they said, yeah, we're going for the Republican who will maybe give us pro-life judges. But when they were asked in the early primaries, is the American dream dead? So much of rural America said yes. And this is what uh, what I'm hoping we're going to talk about, Chuck. But the it's a great place to start with the places that said no, because the rural places that said no, that weren't really rich, fancy schmancy places, but what made them different? Something about the churches. There were church communities that were built up that brought people together, gave them a sense of purpose and mostly a sense of connection and created not just sort of a town or a county, but places where people knew their neighbors, trusted them and found the things that strong communities can provide. What about the opposite places, the places where Trump did very well in the primaries especially those early primaries. These were places that identified often as very religious, right? What's the difference here? Well, first of all, if you read some of the attempts to study who was the early Trump voter, you would see completely opposite explanations. Some people would come out and say, actually, no, economic anxiety doesn't explain why Trump is doing well. We looked at the vo- his supporters in the early primaries, and they're just as likely to make to have a decent income. Usually they're retired, uh, etc. But then other people would say, actually, where you find more drug overdoses, you found more Trump support in the early primaries. We find more foreclosures, more men dropping out of the labor force, more people dropping out of high school. You find Trump support in the early primaries. And so that, again, though, the way you asked the question was exactly right. What were the places? <laughs> the studies that saw Trump supporters were, oh, they're all doing fine. They have nothing to complain about, were polls. They were studies of individuals. When you looked at the election results and the studies of the places, that's where you saw more economic suffering, more social suffering, and that sort of thing. But again, as you said, it wasn't necessarily that these were irreligious places. A lot of times there were places where people didn't go to church. And even on the individual level, that explained Trump. White evangelicals who did not go to church was the best description of the early Trump supporter. And I have friends who said, oh, yeah, that means these people are a bunch of hypocrites. They're not real Christians. That's, I think that's absolutely the wrong way to look at it. The right way to look at it is these were people who didn't have those dense networks of community that, that you and I get from showing up on Sunday in the same place. When, you know, somebody has cancer, you're all bringing meals over there. You're all, you know, showing up and walking their dog. You're driving their kids to school. Church is the most accessible institution in civil society. And, I mean, that, that's what I, I wrote Alienated America about was saying that those institutions and the belonging to that is the key to the good life. And it's the erosion of those institutions, really, that has led to so many of the, the social uh, struggles we see in a lot of rural America. Can we circle back and talk about Chevy Chase? There's a narrative here to kind of explain the way people view what you've just laid out between alienated and really connected community America. And I feel like the the Chevy Chase thing kind of brings it home to me because I, a lot of my friends who live in urban areas and uh, especially the ones who are doing particularly well 
don't really grasp this difference. And it's, it's because their lifestyle is fundamentally different, right? Yeah. So I start the book in, in Chevy Chase, Maryland, um, which is down the road from my house. It's about eight miles away. It's a, the wealthiest community in the, in the Washington, D.C. area. Now, a lot of my conservative Catholic friends assume sort of wealthy, left-leaning place is going to be like a bunch of secular, unmarried swingers <laughs> doing drugs. <laughs> the humanists, yeah, exactly. Yeah, refusing to have kids. Um, but the fact is that when you look at the data and you spend a little bit of time hanging around, and I would go to their meetings, their their village parties, that sort of thing, they may be, you know, voting Democrat, and they're, you know, um, they're, they're flying rainbow flags, not papal flags or anything like that. But guess what? They're generally practicing what social conservatives are preaching. They're finishing school, and for them, it usually means actually most of Chevy Chase has a graduate degree. <laughs> so they're finishing school, then they're getting a job, then they're getting married, then they're having kids, and then they're staying involved in their kids' lives and in their community. You know, the, you meet the old lobbyists, the people I'm always beating up as like the you know the corrupt revolving door lobbyists in Washington, and what they're doing is racing home from their job on K Street to coach T-ball. <laughs> so the the wealthy communities in America a lot of them are you know not these gated communities but they're actually places where people are involved with their neighbors where you can leave your kids tricycle out on the front yard because you have high levels of social trust when you have almost all the children are being raised by two parents you just have much more capacity for PTA moms for basketball coach moms for baseball coach dads uh, the white collar jobs give you the flexibility where you can say okay yeah I can coach basketball I just have to leave work every Wednesday at 4 p.m. that's not something you can do if you're if you're a, a bartender. And so in these communities, there actually is, it's just much easier to access um, uh, the institutions, the public libraries, the public schools are much stronger. Then add on top of that, that money makes it easier to sort of assemble the networks or replace them. So I, I point to me and my wife, we don't really live in a very walkable place. We're over in Silver Spring. We have to drive to our parish. We have to drive to the boys' school. We send our oldest daughter to an all-girls school. These things are fairly spread out. We have two cars. They're both used like Japanese cars that are on average about 12 years old, but we still are able to afford two cars. My wife is able to stay home. I have a flexible job where I'm working from home right now. We piece together this dense network because we have the resources to do it. A working class person doesn't have those resources. So in the Chevy Chases, you have three things going for you. A, the neighborhoods physically actually are more likely to be in some of these places, not these big spread out places, but densely knit, often walkable places. Secondly, you've got the money to uh, assemble less physically proximate communities. And then finally, you have the resources to replace what other people rely on community for, because you can pay for everything to be delivered to your house, pay for a nanny, etc. You and I are both readers of Bowling Alone and have quoted it extensively. I, I know this work impacted you too. I want you to, in a Putnam kind of way, if you would, make the secular case for and I'll just say tolerating religious, you know, life in the public realm. You and I are two Catholics, but we're not here 
you know, arguing for Catholicism, you know, that everyone should become Catholic and live like Catholics. You made the, the secular case for religion, and I thought it was great, and I want to give you the opportunity to, to do that here. Yeah, so I'll, I'll do it in two parts. One, just pointing out, A, you should be happy that that we are a pretty religious country, which is to say, as Putnam dedicates one chapter bowling alone to religious institutions, I think he should have dedicated half the book, because in that chapter he says half of all civic activity in the U.S. begins in a church. Volunteering, um, youth activities, charitable fundraising, all that stuff in America. Now, it's probably less true in 2020 than it was in 2000, but it's still the religious people are just much more likely to give even to secular causes. They're much more likely to volunteer. A lot of people get involved with church almost as a way to say, hey, I want to help the, the, the people who aren't as well off as me. And churches are the ones who are giving me the avenue to do that. Um, and not, not only the avenue, let, you had a great story about being like compelled to, right? <laughs> yes. So that's not me. I'm not the guy who's like, let me go to church to see how I can, you know, feed the hungry. Exactly. Clothe the exactly. naked because I'm, I have six kids. There are hungry, naked people in my house. I don't have to go right. anywhere to find them. <laughs> but so, you know, if you've joined a PTA or belong to a pool, you know the people and you know the look in the eye when you're about to be asked to do something. I remember this at my swim club where there was a guy who would always walk by and be like, hey, Tim. But once he was walking straight at me, and I was like, he's going to make me run the stopwatch during the swim meet. I know it. But then at my parish, what happened once, there was a different guy. His name is Michael. He starts walking towards me after mass, not with a like, hey, happy Sunday look in his face, but definitely something else. It says, hey, Tim, I see you, uh, you signed up for, uh, you signed Meg up for basketball. I said, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and he, he says, well, so the, the good news is there's about six or seven girls from our parish, so we can basically form a parish uh, St. Andrew's team to put in the rec league. I said, oh, that's great. He said, the bad news is we don't have a coach. I said, oh, Michael, I, uh, I can think of a couple guys who might be able to help you with that. He's like, no, Tim, uh, you're, you're all trained and everything. You used to play basketball. I'm wondering if you can coach. And I said, Michael, any any other year but this one, uh, I just got to tell you, I'm so busy. I'm 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 working on a book. He says, "What's the book about?" I said, My, "It's about uh, how we need strong community institutions to build up." Yeah, and so <laughs> you can guess what happened. I ended up yeah, you talk yourself into it, right? <laughs> coaching, and Meg was in kindergarten at this point. So Meg was coaching kindergarten girls basketball that year while writing Alienated America. And I loved it in the end. It was so rewarding. There's like the other parents were coming up to me after every practice and thanking me profusely. Meanwhile, my wife's at home with the other five kids and nobody's walking up to her being like, thank you so much for doing it. So I tried to, you know, be a better husband and do more of that. But man, what a, what a rewarding thing to have that sense of purpose in your life. And it's not because I'm this guy who's constantly going out there and saying, I'm going to serve everybody around me. But when you're plugged into these institutions, that's what happens. You can't be idle. You're, you're, and that's why I say in the book, idleness is not best thought of as a vice, but an affliction. And in so much of America, in the alienated parts, we've mostly talked about the good parts so far, but in the alienated parts, the reason people will turn to drugs, the reason so many of these afflictions happen is because people aren't given the responsibilities that give them a sense of purpose. What does it mean to be alienated? What is life like in an alienated place? 
one of the definitions I use is from a writer named Robert Nisbet, who was he was involved with American Enterprise Institute, like I am. Uh, he was a scholar there, and he his definition of alienation was not just a detachment from kind of the institutions of society, but not even seeing the point in joining up. So when I was in uh, Uniontown, Pennsylvania, that's in Fayette County, about an hour south of uh, of Pittsburgh, and I know people who grew up there, and they talked about it as this great sort of you know working class place to grow up, but that's that's fallen apart a little bit. And the guy would say, no. I asked him if he knew his neighbors. He said, no. The reason I own a gun is because of my neighbors. When I talked to a bartender there, and this was after I wrote the book, so it's not in the book, but I said, what's it like raising kids here? And she said, oh, you can do it. You just have to keep complete tabs on everybody your kids hanging out with. You can't let them run around the neighborhood because they might run into a house where somebody's doing drugs or where, you know, talked about one neighbor who the kid knew what sex was when he was in kindergarten. And so she just, uh, that description of like my children, it's the opposite of Oosberg where they were saying, Oh, our kids here. She was saying she thought of her neighbors, not as sort of us, but as them. Her neighbors probably in turn thought of her. So it's this vicious circle of a lack of social trust and social cohesion. So I think that's a uh, a big example of it. It's a sense that people don't necessarily need you, that people aren't there to help you. And it's just it's too hard to live life that way. <laughs> it's easy for us to be, you know, rugged individualist Americans and you know, if you don't read Little House on the Prairie closely enough, you can think, well what we can do is it takes a family, et cetera, et cetera. But no, it's too hard. So people are trying to do work on their own, either as individuals or even as a nuclear family, that's just too hard for individuals or, or you know, a, a alienated, isolated nuclear family to do. It feels like in that kind of circumstance too. And my city is interesting in that I think we have a little bit of, we're almost a 50-50 split here, I think, in terms of, you know, like we lead the state in unemployment always, you know, that kind of thing. It seems like it's it would be very easy or maybe easier to buy into a narrative that would say, you know, the scary people are coming across the border, oh, yeah. across the whatever, if you are scared, right? No, that, that's exactly right. And the idea that something really is broken and not working right in my community is a correct perception. And that really was why it was so obnoxious when Trump would say the American dream is dead, make America great again. And commentators or other politicians say America's great. All we need to do is, you know, make some little changes around the end. If you visit some of these places, and you've got the drug overdoses. You've got you've got all these other problems. You've got the men who are just dropping out of the labor force, not even seeking a job. And you could say, no, it's it's not just fine. And so, at, from that point, it's easy to accept a a story that uh, that involves scapegoating others or that sort of thing. Because if if some of the elites are saying, actually, no, things are fine, then you're like, wait, what are they up to? Are they trying to rip me off? So the Trump story is, well. The elites want immigrants because they commit crimes in other neighborhoods, not their own, and they're cheaper jobs. And the free trade actually makes us poorer, but it makes the bankers richer, and it's uh, actually destroying your life. Well, that's a story that sort of has some logical coherence, and and it appeals. But if you look at the – and you probably know all this data – 
if you compare Christians who attend church to Christians who don't attend church frequently, so weekly attenders versus infrequent attenders, warmth towards immigrants is greater among Christians who attend church regardless of their otherwise politics. So a a very conservative Christian who goes to church weekly is much more likely to welcome immigrants than one who doesn't. And it's it's the same with liberals who go to church versus liberals who don't go to church. Attending church is positively correlated with warm attitudes towards people who are different, whether it's immigrants or gays, etc., and this isn't the story that you know a lot of the media would tell, but the reason that I posit is because when you belong to something and you feel supported, you're much more likely to say, okay, I owe this sort of support to someone else who comes across my path. The first assumption is that, well, you know, these are people who are getting a message of tolerance and of love and all this. And, and you're actually saying something deeper that when you're connected to a community, almost the other, they're either not scary to you because you are part of a community or you can see them as, uh, as maybe, you know, part of something bigger than yourself. No, that's right. And I'm not to say that the messages preached by, you know, the three great religions doesn't matter. It does. But the idea, the stories of, the Good Samaritan, or, or, or you know, the, the messages that you need to welcome the stranger and, and love your enemies and all those things are much more likely to take root in a, a situation where, again, you are feeling other people are supporting you, and you're feeling you have a purpose. And so, again, somebody says, actually, no, you have to look after these other people. That's what we need you to do, that those messages are much more likely to, to take hold. So that's in, throughout the, the book, and when I've gone around talking about Alienated America, what I've tried to say is the homilies and the sermons are important, but the real value sort of sociologically from the church attendance is going to be the value of the infrastructure of support networks, of community institutions, of the, the instilling you with a sense of duty, a sense of trust, and a, uh, an idea that you need to make yourself someone who is trustworthy, that from the, the sociological perspectives, those are the, the big benefits of attendance. And again, you mentioned Putnam. Putnam and David Campbell, who's a, he belongs to uh, the Mormon Church. He's a professor at Notre Dame. They wrote a book called American Grace, which is sort of uh, twice as big, ten times as religious follow-up to Bowling Alone, and um, they said, yeah, basically attendance is the is the one factor that makes uh, sort of the religious in America uh, sort of much healthier and much more generous, uh, much more than belief or prayer or anything like that. What really matters is the attendance. So that's why I think we need to look at it as a question of sort of of belonging rather than uh, simply a, a matter of belief. The belief is absolutely crucial. And as a Catholic, I think this is how you get to heaven, is, <laughs> is through the sacraments that the Church administers. But as a social commentator, I think this is how communities get built, is by people showing up and seeing their neighbors, being physically proximate, and working together for a joint higher purpose. Now, there's a lot of people who would say, we agree with you on the mediating institutions. There needs to be some... And let's just say for a lack of a better you know, phrase, a social safety net that would help people out, something that would be there in the community. And, and, but they look at it as more like you know, a social worker, like how do we get more people in doing social work? 
I've got two questions. And the, the first one is really, you know, why, particularly in these, uh, let's call them alienated uh, areas, why is that not enough? And then I think the second kind of related question is why in areas that are not alienated, does that seem like, you know, maybe a, a, a better idea for alienated places that, than not? You know, why, why is the perception, if I'm sitting in Chevy Chase and I'm looking around going, you know, well, you know, there's kids being raised in single family households and, uh, you know, it's tough on the moms. And what we need to do is provide more social safety net. Why does that look so attractive from Chevy Chase, but in the alienated areas, maybe doesn't work out on the ground that way? I, I think that that's a, a great question. And one thing that struck me was when when Pope Francis, I use his his wording in in the book, when Pope Francis first wrote about the poor, the phrase he used was the inclusion of the poor in society. And I remember thinking about that and how that was a little more of a heavy lift than I was ready <laughs> to get from him. It wasn't, we need to make sure we put money in the poor box. We need to support higher taxes or more government or you know charitable giving or, or anything like that. It was the inclusion of the poor in society. And we do have more geographic segregation by income and education than ever before, at least going back a hundred years. We've, we've alleviated some of the racial segregation, but we've certainly exacerbated the, the class segregation as far as where people live, who they go to school with, who they go to the pool with, etc. If you are living in Chevy Chase, and one of the things I point out is that wealthier people in America are, the top 20% are more likely to support sort of income redistribution than the middle class. And one possible way to look at this is if you're wealthy and doing well, you like your little league where all the other coaches are lawyers and doctors and lobbyists, etc. And you're happy to cut a check to sort of salve your, your conscience, cut a check through a charitable giving or through higher taxes. And I don't want to be too ungenerous, but I think that's one explanation why sort of people think, okay, let's send more help over there because including them is harder because you've got your community, you've got your norms, you've got your idea that everybody's raised by two parents. And if the single mom shows up, it makes it makes stories a little bit harder to tell. If, if a different family shows up that doesn't, you know, have as good lawn care, it, it makes you worry about your neighborhood. So the idea of, of sharing and including in your community is a lot heavier, more uncomfortable lift. And uh, it's what Pope Francis calls for. And I think it's true because the fact is that when you look at the 1960s, for instance, you did have a lot more of the, you know, the public schools or the Catholic schools or the, you know, other, whatever the schools were, public or private or religious or secular, there was a lot more integration on class lines. There was less integration on racial lines. And it's, it's great that we've started to overcome that, but we've gone the opposite direction on class. And so what, what you're looking at is people who, it's easy to say, I'm taking care of the poor by cutting a check. But People don't just need money. We need to make sure they have the food so they don't starve. Redistributing money has a lot of positive effects. One social worker I talked to while talking about this book said, no program ever fixed people's problems. Relationships fix people's problems. So she realized her job was now to help people build relationships that were durable 
and that that is what would get the addicts, the single moms, the orphans that she's working with on the path to a happy life. I know you're familiar with Chris Arnotti. Uh You guys did a, yep. a thing together a while back, right? Yeah, yeah. He came to, to AEI and we had, a, we had a good talk. Yep. Yeah. I, I don't know if you had a chance to read his book or not. Oh, yeah. I, I'm, I feel like, you know, coming from a very liberal perspective, a very left of center perspective, you two seem to arrive at a lot of the same conclusions regarding community. Is there some common ground here just in general that I I think shouldn't be left, right or liberal conservative, but just are more human? Certainly. Yeah. So both of us reject a purely economic explanation for a lot of the suffering of the poor and the working class. Now this makes some of our friends, some of my libertarian friends, some of his friends on the on the left, a little uneasy when you say it, because on the left, if you say they don't just need a check, people say, ah, you're trying to come up with some excuse for your low tax conservative economics and get out of your duty to pay higher taxes, etc. And if you say it on the right and you try to provide a non-economic explanation, well, that kind of can undercut some of the idea that economic growth is going to solve these problems. So both of us are, are making arguments that reject a purely materialistic explanation for the struggles of the poor and the working class in America. So that that's sort of the biggest overlap. That culture does matter. And he, he said he was really surprised to come out saying how much church matters. He went into a, a lot more churches than I did and spent, uh, you know, there were people who, it was real poor neighborhoods, and they would spend three hours on a Sunday in a, in a sweltering church with no air conditioning, and that this was where they found their community. This was where they found what they could find of a human-level safety net. The other sort of really major point of overlap was, I mean, and it's in the title of his book, Dignity. People needed to feel that they mattered and they had a sense of purpose, and they were needed. And so while he's not going to call for cutting any you know, federal government programs, he's going to say it's really dumb to say you, you don't have any right to complain because you know, you're getting this farm aid or you're getting this food stamp or you're getting this unemployment benefit, that those things can't provide the sense of dignity that real belonging and purpose can provide. You make a, a really strong case. It harkens back to other ones I, I've seen make a similar case that individualism and isolation kind of go together and, and centralization and disenfranchisement go together. Talk a little bit about how they're related and why you say over-centralization is one of the, the key problems here that we need to overcome. Yeah, so over-centralization and hyper-individualism can sound like sort of two opposite problems. Are we all off doing our own thing, or are we all lumped together into one, you know, big army regiment? But uh, my AI colleague, uh, Yuval Levin, who himself is sort of relying on Alexis de Tocqueville, said they're not opposite tendencies so much as they are two sides of the same coin. And that really is one of the most important things, I think, to understanding the cause of alienation. So that is to say that when, and I say centralization in at least three ways in this book. One is sort of a typical conservative point to make, and I think it's very true. Government centralization is one of the problems. You've uh, replaced a lot of human-level, local-level safety net with a massive 
federal bureaucracy, which is heartless, which has all sorts of, you know, they, they make you pee in a cup before you can get your food stamps. It's, it's not based on trust. It's not based on love. It's not based on anything like that. And it's displaced a lot of the, the local level things. But I also mean centralization of economics, the replacement of thousands of little downtowns, tens of thousands of downtowns with uh, a couple thousand, uh, you know, shopping centers that everybody in the region drives to, that that really has eroded community. And also a centralization of our attention, that we're, we now know the names of like Donald Trump's lawyers. We know who Michael Avenatti is before we know who our county councilor is or, you know, or anything like that. We We think that, we know that we're political animals, so we think we're supposed to carry out our politics on the national level, which leads to this huge frustration, rather than carrying them out at our local swim club or our parish or, or, or community or PTA or that sort of thing, where we actually do have power if we're willing to put in a little bit of work. But all of those things are tied to an individualism because I think one thing that pulls people away from serving their neighbors is the, the, the sort of shape of modern life, that it's easier to just hide in your house, your air-conditioned house with your attached garage and your, you know, we used to say 900 cable channels, but that's an archaic way of talking about it. Your infinite access to all, uh, like, content ever produced. You can get your own uh, cappuccino maker in your house, etc. And that these are, these things that allow us to sort of curate our own life, allow us to separate from our neighbors, they're both caused by and they contribute to sort of a, a greater centralization. As, as Tocqueville sort of talks about it, it's, it's that we have sort of stronger bonds towards the center and weaker lateral bonds to our neighbors and our peers. You talk about subsidiarity. In my book, I talk about it too. I feel like as Catholics, it's almost like, I don't think I ever heard anyone in Catholic church or Catholic teaching or anywhere talk about subsidiarity. But when I first heard it, I'm like, well, yeah, that's exactly what we do, right? Are we obligated to talk about this, I think? No, it, it, the, the Pope said that we, if we don't do it, we're, we're going to be in big trouble because we're too Catholic. Okay, well then <laughs> you'd, better, you'd better explain it and talk about it. And then I, I've got, uh, I got a couple follow-up questions on subsidiarity. Yeah, so different duties, tasks, responsibilities are best carried out at different levels. And a lot of times I think that in, in modern American culture particularly, we tend to carry things out at too central a level. And subsidiarity is saying, no, you've got to ask what is the proper level for doing this. And very often, especially given the tendencies of today, it means actually moving it to the, the most local level that can do it effectively. That's really what, what I mean when I say subsidiarity is if the, your parish can do this, your diocese can't do it, to put it in Catholic terms. And I would say if a, a neighborhood can do this without any governmental intervention, then the government shouldn't get involved. Now, there's a lot of things that can't be done. When I talk about the safety net, I say, actually, we do need a federal role of moving money around because some regions are much poorer than others because the federal government can spend more when the economy is in a downturn while local governments and charities can't. So I certainly am not saying the federal government shouldn't have a role in these things, but I'm saying that moving the money around during bad times, that's properly done by the federal government, and that is uh, an argument from subsidiarity. But the feeding of the homeless and the taking care of the unemployed, at least on the execution level, that's properly done a lot more locally than it's done now. So one of the pushbacks that I always get whenever I talk about 
any type of, of localism or local action or building local community or empowering local people to, to solve problems is this local is fertile ground for ignorance and it's fertile ground for bigotry and it's fertile ground for exclusion. I want to give you a chance to, to, to push back on that one. Well, it, those arguments aren't totally false. And when you look at, you know, uh, old neighborhood where everybody ran around and they, they went to the same church and they played stickball in the street, Fishtown, Philadelphia is one of the neighborhoods I talk about like that in my, in my book. The first time a black family tried to move into that neighborhood, they were basically chased out. You had like sort of this nice cohesion of these little platoons. You had the Irish people on one side, the Polish people on the other. They had a friendly rivalry, but black people didn't fit into that mix. And so that's certainly historically true. When we're talking about we want stronger, walkable communities, if we're talking about you know pre-World War II or you know pre-civil rights era neighborhoods, you can understand why people would say, ah, I don't, I'm not going to join in your nostalgia there. But we see costs on the other side now, too, that the alienation, the lack of belonging, the deracination, meaning sort of the uprooting of people, causes just as many problems. That If we're just looking at the question of racism, I would say the fact that when people don't belong to anything, when you don't have an ethnic identity, I referred to you know my Irishness earlier, my Catholicism now, that these are identities. And so when I say us, meaning Catholics, then, yeah, that's making Protestants or, or secular people or Jewish people of them. But I don't think it's doing it in a way that's necessarily antagonistic. But if I don't have an us, which is my family, my community, my parish, you know, other Irish Americans who like the same music that I do, et cetera, you're still going to find an identity. And when you look at people who end up as white nationalists, or who join ISIS or a street gang or anything like that, a lot of times you look into their past, they weren't brought up in a church. They didn't live in, either they moved around a ton or the communities they lived in didn't have strong social cohesion. So just from that question of sort of harmony, I think that the more kind of little platoons you have, if you look like, if you look like Pittsburgh where you've got here a Jewish neighborhood, here a Polish neighborhood, here a Russian neighborhood, that that can create a sort of peace. Now, that doesn't mean in the future we should be rebuilding those things, but we should say, okay, what was the good stuff from that? And it was a sense of belonging that didn't necessarily pit you against the other. It didn't feel like a zero-sum game. Yeah, you wanted to beat the neighboring high school in the basketball game, but that didn't mean that you were, you were going to be enemies. So that's, I do think that we need to – America has always been more of a patchwork in my mind than a melting pot. And I don't even advocate for the melting pot. Maybe you and I disagree on this. But I say, no, we, we've got to belong to a bunch of little platoons. And they should overlap and be at many different levels. That's the other point I make in Alienated America. I say that if we just belong to a church, if I only belong to St. Andrews and nothing else, then that could be isolating. But you know what? I also there, There's a pub I frequent. There's a, uh, a swimming uh, club that our family belongs to just even our metro stop is a bit of a is a bit of a hub and then i've got my work institutions uh, etc and so 
the overlap, the intermingling, the, uh, the adjacency, the multiple different levels of things, that's a very American thing. That's what Tocqueville describes. Not just that we join a bunch of things, but we join a bunch of things that are all doing different purposes and have some overlap and some non-overlap. And that is this kind of thing that can alleviate some of the, the tension or bigotry that, that can otherwise develop in a two-insular society. And finally, I would just say, in a different time or a different place, Instead of writing Alienated America, I would have written, like, you know, Cloistered America. <laughs> like that, that, that's just not the problem that we have right. today. Right. As we record this, we're on the eve of the uh, New Hampshire primary. I don't want to get necessarily into politics, but it does seem related to your book that we're in a populist moment. And maybe moment is the wrong word because it's been a populist moment for a few years now, at least. How does populism, both left populism and right populism, kind of spring from the alienation that you're describing? I certainly think it's, uh, it's a part of the fact, the, as I, I mentioned earlier, the title of Robert Nisbet's book, The Quest for Community. We naturally want to belong to something. And as Aristotle said, man is a political animal. We, we want to not just mind our own lives, but also to shape the world around us. And the way that I shape the world around me, I always say that my part of the world, my neighborhood, looks different from Google Maps satellite now than it did before I moved here because I got the baseball field turned back into a baseball field. There's dirt there instead of just grass and weeds because I was able to lever my parish to turn it back into a baseball field so we could start baseball and t-ball programs. That's where I change the world around me. That's me being a political animal. I'm building coalitions. I'm trying to get people to contribute money and resources. I'm bringing people together for the t-ball and the barbecue. So my politics is not mostly the columns I write. It's, you know, I lobbied my local government to change the, the shape of an intersection, and they responded and did a study and did it. On a local level where I can actually make a difference, I've been able to make a difference, and it's immensely rewarding. If you're not plugged into things, and you follow Robert Putnam, and most of us are less plugged in than we were, and a lot of young people don't belong to a club, don't think about their local government, and so they say, I want to shape the world around me, and then they look at Washington. And certainly, if you were um, looking at Trump and he said, I alone can fix this, and you look at Occupy Wall Street and Bernie Sanders and they say, why don't you have a voice in politics? It's because the lobbyists and the banks have too much of a voice. The second half of that statement is true. The first half, though, is glossing over the fact that you ought to have a voice at the local level. And in fact, a lot of the Bernie campaign people coming out in 2016 just said, the best part about this is now I know all my neighbors and I never did before. <laughs> so that's a real positive thing that people are connected. But the negative thing is if they think that the way they're supposed to be political animals is by you know passing HR 2120, as opposed to trying to make sure that there's stoplights at the at the right places or or you know that that the school has a decent playground then that's a way in which populism is guilty of this overcentralization of both our politics and our attention I want to get to Mitt Romney in a sec but before we do that I want to tie in your book to Strong Towns this is a fantastic read and a, and a great story you also throw in, throw in is probably the wrong way to put it because I, I, I think it's very central to what you're talking about. The dense network of community being something that also has a physical dimension. And, and you talk about 
having walkable neighborhoods and build more of a place. Why did you get to that? Because I, I don't think you have background in planning or community design or anything like that, but, but you've come to this. How? Why? When you're doing research on a book, a lot of the way you come across everything is you read an article and it links to something else and that links to a study. And then you read the study and then you look at the footnotes and then you get the books. <laughs> and on urbanism, it just suddenly looked like this tidal wave of books I wanted to read and articles and studies I wanted to read. And it was going to drown me and I was never going to finish the book. So I, I, I do address it in, in a couple of chapters, um, but it was sort of new for me to come across. And I remember living in D.C. and there was a city councilman who would talk about walkability and that just almost seemed like an arbitrary thing to me. And then as I worked my way through this book and I thought of the places where there were strong bonds, especially strong bonds for the middle class and working class, I realized that the physical proximity and the walkability was big. And again, I see things from a perspective of a parent. We have six kids. And I just think the two things that really make life hard is, A, if for our kids to do fun stuff, we have to drive them. And second, if for our kids to walk around by themselves, we're worried that they're going to get run over by a car going 50 miles an hour down a road that's three lanes in both directions, which is most of Montgomery County, Maryland, where I live. And so, you know, when we're going on summer vacation, we're explicitly thinking, where can we just let the kids run around so that we don't have to <laughs> bother with them? Just that's sort of the, the parent way to look at it. But otherwise, you know, the, the serendipitous encounters where you're, you're walking to the store to get your dry cleaning and you bump into your neighbor. You're walking to your store to get the dry cleaning and that's when you notice a new uh, Chinese place that showed up in your neighborhood. All of those things that you can uh, speak on much better than I can, but I, I see it from the perspective of a parent is that raising kids, like that poor woman in Uniontown who she said she could raise her kids, but she had to do it all herself as opposed to my friends who have sort of intentionally all moved onto the same street in some parts around here. And, and they say, oh, yeah, no, the most annoying thing is that, like, my kids' shoes are going to be in somebody else's house when we have to go off to school. And I'm saying that there, there are worse problems to have. I mean, you look at when kids say, oh, I'm, I'm bored, can you do something with me? And you're busy or you're doing something with other kids. That's a real hard life. It takes a village to raise a kid. You shouldn't have to be driving them everywhere. Right. Mitt Romney is the uh, senator from Utah. Utah, back in the 2016 election, went overwhelmingly for Donald Trump in the general election. Talk a little bit about why someone like Mitt Romney might not be as predisposed, however, to, in a sense, toe the party line. Utah, if none of the above had been on the ballot in 2016 general election, Utah would have been the best state for none of the above. In the Republican primaries on a state level, Utah was his second, was uh, Trump's second worst state in the, in the primary, second only to Wyoming. And so what's going on there? What I argue is that the Mormon church, more than basically almost any other institution in America, and I say this with some envy as a Catholic, the Mormon church has built really dense local networks that sort of practice subsidiarity. The basic safety net is carried out on the level of the congregation. If you, or at least sort of the, you know, the, the a cluster of a few congregations, if you lose your job, the bishop's storehouse, which is a short drive at worst, 
is where you're going to pick up your groceries for free, but it's going to be someone who's attending with you on Sunday who works in your in your own ward, as they, they call the local congregations, who's going to provide for it. And so everybody, the families are giving up meals periodically and donating that money to fund the bishop's storehouse. So even if you never are the person who calls on the local community for the human-level short-term safety net, you're the person who's contributing to it just by fasting with your with your family and with your, your fellow congregants. And then if you look at the ripple effects of the Mormon church in a place like Salt Lake City that I visited, you see an immense amount of social trust, an immense amount of a sense of purpose. And so the American dream which seems dead in a lot of middle America, is alive and well in so much of Utah. There's reasons people call it the the happiest state in the country. Now, they, they have specifically, like a lot of rural places in the Mountain West, they do have drug problems. They do have a lot of things like that. But as far as sort of um, family strength, general happiness, sense of purpose, it exceeds. So when Trump is saying you are going to find your meaning in a national politics that speaks to you, that doesn't resonate in Utah as much. And Certainly, when Trump says the American dream is dead, and you look around your neighborhood at the potlucks, the neighbors who are giving up a meal to take care of anybody else who might have something bad happen to them, you're saying, nope, this is the American dream, and it's, it's pretty much alive and well. The book is Alienated America, Why Some Places Thrive While Others Collapse. Tim, I've been following you for years. If other people want to do that, what's the, what's the best place? So uh, check out what I write at the Washington Examiner. Uh, WashingtonExaminer.com, uh, American Enterprise Institute, which is AEI.org. I'm on Twitter at TP Carney. Most of what I write there is a joke, so don't take it too seriously. It's been a pleasure to do this. I appreciate you taking the time. I'm, I'm glad we got to meet, and uh, I hope we can do this again soon. Thanks, man. Looking forward to it. <laughs> All right. You take care. Have a great day. You too. Bye. And thanks, everybody. Keep doing what you can to build a strong town. Taking risk is a necessity to becoming rich. It's also a necessity to go bankrupt. Bill, 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 Bill. That's a story. They know that America's one big pothole right now. Just to echo what you said, there are no silver bullet solutions. Chuck Marone, this has been fascinating. The window is not always open, but if nobody's pushing, then once the window opens, there'll be no chance to go through. I like you. I like your vision of the the world. The United Nations Earth Summit. Agenda 21. Yeah.